this week on Hope for the Broken. I think it would be naive for us to think, man, we'll never get offended. We should take a different perspective of when we are offended. When David was offended, it got the best of him. David was vengeful. But listen, payback never works. When we retaliate, it only deepens the divide. If you and I are going to deal with offense in a healthy way, we need to be a people that overcome evil with good. This is exactly the way God encourages us to deal with offense in our life. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 20 titled, The Good, The Fool, and The Offended. We are in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled Life Lessons. And what we're doing is we're working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And today we come to chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. 1 Samuel 25, as we look at a message that I have titled, The Good, The Bad, and The Offended. Of course, this is a take on the old Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the offended. Now, I know that I've shared with you some that I have the privilege to be able to coach uh, my boys in uh, our local homeschool sports organization, and uh, I coach basketball and baseball, and it's, I've been told, anyway, that sometimes I'm, account, uh, I'm, I'm competitive, right? So I like to get competitive, and I mean, what's the point of playing, right, if you're not going to win the ball game, right? And so uh, in my competitive nature, I've also been known uh, to maybe disagree with a call that the refs make or the umpires make, right? And uh, I've also been known to kind of let them know that, that they're wrong. And, uh, and so <laughs> um, while I'm never vulgar, I, I'm, I'm not that. I don't want you to hear me say that. I, I, I do make my, my opinion known, right? But on occasion, my wife, Kathy, God's given me a great wife. She will walk by the bench, behind the bench or the dugout, and she'll just be walking and she'll just say, remember, you're a pastor. And she'll just kind of keep on walking, right? And it cuts me to the core. And I'm like, oh, man, I got to act right now. I've been I've been I've been out in. Well, today we're going to take a look at David and David has one of those moments. He's going to encounter someone that's going to hold him accountable. Say, remember, you're out of line here and he's going to wind up being appreciative of it. And, uh, and so we're going to, we're going to see that. But our passage today is unique. It, it, it shifts gears a little bit. We, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been studying this, how King Saul is pursuing David to try to eliminate him because he feels threatened that David has uh, been anointed the next king of Israel. And so, uh, Saul's on the hunt for David. But here we, we press pause in that storyline and we're introduced to two new characters. In this, in this story in, in 1 Samuel. And so let's look at the story. Let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 25. And it says this, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, for they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran. All right, so the, the chapter opens with Samuel, the nation's spiritual leader, dying. 
And this was sort of an end of an era for the nation of Israel. You remember Samuel was Israel's last judge. Israel, before they anointed Saul as king, they were a theocracy. In other words, they were governed by God, and God had instilled these judges that, that would rule uh, the people and the nation. But then the people were like, no, listen, we want a king like all the neighboring nations. And so God gave them Saul. And, and when God rejected Saul and his kingship, Samuel then anointed David as the next king of Israel. And so when, when Samuel dies, this is a massive uh, heartache. It's, it's, it's a significant loss for the nation. But it's also a giant loss personally for David because David often sought counsel or sought advice from Samuel and now he is out of the picture. And so you can imagine the heartfelt loss that David was feeling. The text here in verse 1 says all of Israel joined together, assembled together to mourn Samuel's passing. Now we don't know from this text if both Saul and David were there. But I think that they were, and, and there's two reasons why I think that they were. First, if Samuel is such a national icon like he is, I mean, the king is almost required to be at the, at the funeral service of such a national icon. And so I imagine Saul is there. But the question then becomes, is David there? Uh, because David's got to be very careful about public appearances with Saul because he's on the run and, and he doesn't want Saul to find out where he is. I think David is there because the end of verse 1 says that then David rose and went to Paran. And it's almost as if the text is trying to tell us David kind of snuck in the back of the funeral. And as soon as it was over, he stood up and he, he made haste and he left. And so I have a tendency, just in my opinion, I have a tendency to think that they were both there. Now let's just keep reading verses 2 through 3. It says, and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man, Nabal, was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now there are two new characters, Nabal, Abigail. And we learned some key things about these two new people that we're introduced to. Nabal was very rich. And we know that he was rich because not only does the text say that, but he owned a significant amount of sheep and goats. His wife, Abigail, is intelligent and beautiful. Now we learned that Nabal, that he was harsh and badly behaved. In the original language, if we were to literally translate that, it means that he was abusive and mistreating of people. So in other words, Nabal is a jerk, Abigail is beautiful inside and out. Now, it says that she was discerning, meaning that she was wise. This woman was, was a woman who had wisdom deep within her. And Abigail, in our story, is the good. So if we're looking at the good, the bad, the offended, Abigail is the good. Nabal is the bad. And we're going to see David is the offended. Now, the name Nabal in the Hebrew, means foolish. Now, I don't think his parents named him that. Uh, I've seen some weird names, but I don't think parents are going to name their child foolish. I think this probably was more of a nickname that he earned based upon how he treated people and how he acted and conducted himself. Abigail, on the other hand, means a father's joy. Abigail, beautiful inside and out, she was a father's joy. 
Now you may be asking, how did this beautiful inside and out Abigail wind up married to this jerk of a man, Nabal? Well, remember in those days and times that it was common for marriages to be arranged. And it could very well be since he was well off that uh, Abigail's father said, hey, here's a man that could take care of her, at least financially speaking. And so this may have been an arranged marriage here. But either way, Nabal outkicked his coverage. Uh, He's got this wife and she's beautiful inside and out. Let's keep reading verses four through eight. It said, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. This is how you should greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. Peace, peace, peace. In other words, this was a very formal, very genuine, very caring introduction exchange. And say, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at the hand of your servants to your son, David. So what's happening here? Well, it's harvesting time, right? Nabal is busy shearing his sheep. He's gathering in this influx, this harvest. It was a celebration. And it was customary in those days for ranchers during the time of harvest to be sharing of their goods. It was, a, it was an expression of thanks, David, we're told, he and his men were living in the wilderness, and they actually protected Nabal. They protected his servants, and they protected his assets. See, they would travel in those days, and it was often known that the Philistines would rob these ranchers, steal their lambs, steal their goats, or take their goods and and pillage them. But David and his men were in the wilderness fighting off these Philistines and therefore protected Nabal and his harvest. So David's performed a, 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 a good a service to them. So in a way, Nabal owed it to David. Some sort of payment, an expression of gratitude of thanks. So let's see how Nabal responds here to David's normal and very polite request, verses 9 through 11. When David's young men came, they said all of that to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. They waited Nabal's answer. Verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who's David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water, and my meat that I have killed for my sharers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. Nabal, the jerk, he he insults David in his response. He doesn't just say, no, I'm giving you nothing. No, he says, who is David? We know this is an insult because everyone knows who David is. David's a national hero. He was forced upon the scene whenever he slayed the giant. When he killed Goliath with a sling and a stone, everybody knows David. In fact, in those days, we also learn in chapter 18 that they were singing songs about David. David was very well known. And so for Nabal to say, who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? It was insulting to David. And not only was it insulting to David, but he brought his daddy in it. 
right? Like, who's your daddy? Like, that kind of a thing is exactly what he says here. Now, what's more, in addition to the insult, is we see Nabal is a stingy person. He is a stingy person. I'm not giving him anything. After David and his men put their lives on the line to protect Nabal, to protect Nabal's servants, to protect his assets, his animals, he's not giving them anything, right? So you see, Nabal is plain and simple, a jerk. So how is David going to respond to this news? Let's look at it, verses 12 through 13. So David's young men turned away, and they came back, and they told David all of this. Verse 13, and David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. In other words, he did what? He said what about my daddy? He going to pay, right? Everybody sort up, mount up. We're going to go take care of this Nabal guy, right? And so David, he's hangry, right? I mean, he's out in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's mad that Nabal has insulted him, and he is on his way. He's, he's offended, greatly offended by this man. Now, this is not a good look on David. Does he have a right to be offended? Absolutely. Does he have a right to take a life of Nabal? No, he does not. But he's on his way. He's, he's made up his mind. He is going to do this. David is acting on impulse here. He, he becomes full of vengeance and he actually overreacts. Have you ever been there? Someone has offended you and you've overreacted to the situation. He crossed the line into sin. Now, we tend to think of Bible characters as some sort of superheroes, right? Like they don't have any real struggles. Uh, but I'm, I'm so very grateful for God's word. It, it gives us an insight here that not are they, they're not superheroes, they're human. And so David here, he has some struggles, David obviously struggles with anger. Here, he's not even really struggling with anger. (laughs) He's crossed the line. He's just, he's mad, right? And he's giving full vent to his anger. He's acting rashly. David's on a mission to kill Nabal. But then the story takes an interesting turn. One of Nabal's servants who overheard what he said went to Abigail, his wife, and let her know that her husband insulted the next king of Israel. And she was probably like, that's my husband. He's a fool, right? I got to cover it. So look at what she does in verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As, and as she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Abigail, the good, the wise, the brilliant, she acted quickly. And she said, you know what? I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to load up a bunch of goods. I'm going to send them ahead. And I'm going to try to divert David here. The fact that she could load up so much stuff in an instance shows you what kind of heart Nabal had, right? It's not that he was struggling to have something. No, he had a bunch. And she loaded it up quickly. She's on her way up the mountain. David's on his way down the mountain to do what he intended to do. And they meet there together. Let me sum up what happens here because we're going to zoom in on this in just a second. Uh, 
She comes to David and she bows down at him and she says, listen, I want you to take all this stuff. My husband should have given you this stuff. He didn't. I'm sorry. Please accept my apology. Take this gift and then forgive him. And besides, David, you don't want any blood on your hands here. That's only going to come back and haunt you whenever you're king. And so she does all this. And guess what David does? David says, you know what? You're right, Abigail. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for holding me accountable to God's standards. And he received it and he turned and he relented from his wrath. Abigail heads back home and guess what her crazy husband's doing? He's throwing a party. It must be Super Bowl because he's drunk on wine, right? And so she thinks, well, I can't share anything with him because he's, he's not even going to remember it anyway. So she waits until the next morning when Nabal has sobered up. We pick it back up, verse 37. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So Nabal is so shocked by his wife's generosity towards David that he either has a heart attack or a stroke. Either way, he becomes immobilized. He becomes as a stone. And then 10 days later, He died from whatever this episode was. Let's see how the story ends. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife, And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife." Now, this is a little problematic because you remember David was actually married to Michal, Saul, King Saul's daughter. So he was the father-in-law. The Saul was uh, David's father-in-law. Well, because David was having to live life on the run, Michal was all alone. Saul took his daughter back and gave her to another man, essentially divorcing her from David. He also did this to spite David. Like, I, I know you really loved Michal, but I'm going to take her and give her to another person. So David then takes Abigail, who is now a widow, to be his wife. Now, also this chapter ends with David taking another wife while Abigail is still with him. He takes Ahinoam as a wife, and he will add over the course of his remaining years many, many more wives. I want to speak to this a minute because there are many people that will point to David and say, well, David was a man after God's own heart. So is is polygamy something that is condoned in the scriptures? No, it is not. This is not God's design for David. And in fact, because David did this, he'll actually encounter much more difficulties. His family will never be blessed because he's not pursuing God's design for marriage and oneness. No, God will actually cause his family to be a family of turmoil that would almost come back and give David the greatest trials of his life. You think running from King Saul is difficult right now, but what about running from your own son? Right? This is all the effects. Every choice has a consequence. 
Good godly choices lead to good godly consequences. Poor, unhealthy, ungodly decisions lead to poor, unhealthy, ungodly consequences, right? And so we see that in David. All right, now let's talk about some life lessons here. When I was reading through this story, I jotted down like six different life lessons. Like that I thought, man, this is, this, this chapter is full of life lessons. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, we would really like to get to lunch today. And you're beginning to feel the hunger pains, right? You're going to get hangry. And then you're going to come after me like David came after Nabal. And I want to avoid that. So here's what I want to do. I picked three of the life lessons that speak to me. Okay. So I tell you all the time, because it's true, I'm preaching to myself. Y'all are just in the room. Okay. So these are three things that leap off the page and, and challenge me personally. All right. Then I want to encourage you to do this. This week, I want you to spend the whole week just reading 1 Samuel 25. And y'all begin to write out what are the life lessons that I'm seeing out of 1 Samuel 25. But I'm going to share with you three. Perhaps these will also speak to you today. First, we need to value accountability. We need to see the value of accountability in our lives. The truth is, is that we all need people in our life that will hold us accountable, that will call us on our stuff, that will say, hey, listen, you're out of line here and speak into that situation. I need that. You need that too. And we see the value of that in our lives. David gets highly offended and rightfully so. Nabal disrespected him. He insulted his family, but David allowed his anger to lead to sinful thoughts. He was emotional. He was heated. And those two uh, predispositions always, in my view, always lead to poor decision making. He was emotional. He was heated. Bad time to make a, a major decision. But Abigail, in her wisdom, redirected David and his course. And as an effect of her holding him accountable to to godliness, David didn't wind up doing something that he would later regret. You and I benefit from these kind of relationships, don't we? Have you ever had someone call you on on a disposition and, and, and it prevented you from making a terrible choice? I have. There's even been times in my own life where I've made a choice and I wished, why didn't someone call me on that? Why didn't someone hold me accountable to that and that you wind up regretting it? See, we all need to see the value of accountability in our lives. But let's be honest. There's an issue with giving and receiving accountability that makes it challenging, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you say that's the challenge? If I'm in the wrong, do I really want to hear that? Or how is it that I approach someone that is living in sin in, in a way that is redemptive or the way that in which they can receive it? See, accountability is a two sides of one coin. It's how it's received, but it's also how it's delivered that's vitally important. And so here's what I want to do. I want to zoom in on the conversation between Abigail and David as we see with Abigail five ways she approached David so that he could receive it. And then I also want to see how David actually received the accountability. So let's read. I want to read the whole conversation, and then I want to pick it apart. Verses 23 through 31 of 1 Samuel 25. It says, when Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. 
she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But your servant did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, then now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant." Five things here Abigail does that puts David in a position for her accountability to be received. Five things that we need to emulate as we hold our brothers and sisters in place. Number one, she was humble. She came humbly. She took the posture of humility. What did she do when she saw David? She fell down at his feet. She bowed before him. She doesn't start pointing fingers She doesn't start raising her voice. Now, David, you shouldn't be doing this. No, she takes a position of humility. And this immediately caused any wall of hostility that David had around his heart and around his mind to come tumbling down. And he was able to hear what she had to say. And so this is extremely important for us to follow the same example. We cannot nor do any of us have the platform to come from a place of superiority when we hold a brother and a sister accountable for their actions. We are sinners too. Preaching at someone is never effective, but a humble approach opens the ears of one's heart and one's mind to receive the accountability that you are bringing. And that is a good thing. So Abigail was humble. Secondly, She identified with David. What was it that Abigail said right off the bat? She said, this one's on me. On me. My bad. My fault. In other words, I'm not perfect either. I make mistakes too, David. I understand where you're coming from. I see your perspective. And because of that, he was more apt to listen to her. And she began by accepting responsibility of her own sin, and therefore she had an opportunity to explain the situation from another perspective. When we hold others accountable, we would do well to remember that we are sinners too, saved by God's grace. So Abigail was humble. She identified with David. The third thing she did is she offered a better solution. She offered a better solution. After earning the right to be heard, She said, hey, David, take this gift, 
Would you forgive him? Would you please accept this and just forgive in this situation? Take this as an, as an apology. So she offered a better solution. Fourthly, Abigail reminded David of God's truth. I want you to notice something. It wasn't until she humbled herself. It wasn't until she said, this is my bad, I'm a sinner too. And it wasn't until she started saying, hey, maybe there's a better solution here that she offered scripture in that moment. See, when we come at somebody and the first thing we do is this barrage of machine gun uh, Bible verses, it becomes very judgmental. You know, we say, well, the Bible says, and that's a machine gun approach. But once, once she humbled herself, once she identified with David, once David realized she's coming humbly, guess what? He was more apt to listen to what God's word had to say in that moment. Proverbs 25, 11 says it this way. A word fitly spoken. The word fitly spoken means at the right time is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So Abigail was humble. She identified with David, offered a better solution, and reminded David of God's truth. Finally, she gave examples of God's faithfulness to David. She gave him examples. I want you to see how smart Abigail was. Look what she says in verse 29, this whole exchange. She says, if men rise up to pursue you, David, to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. The lives of your enemies shall, check this out, sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What's Abigail doing here? She's reminding David that the Lord fights your battles. Remember when David last used a sling and a stone? It's when he miraculously defeated Goliath. Abigail is so smart. She's like, hey, let me remind you, David, that it's the Lord that fights your battles, not you. It's, it's a great reminder here to him. And this is what she did. In her wisdom, as she approached David in these five ways, Abigail's approach lifted David up instead of beat him down. Listen, when we go to offer accountability to our fellow brothers and sisters, is it painful? Yes. But the end goal is to lift them up, not to beat them down. And so this is extremely important. Now, the next question is, how did David receive her accountability? Well, he manned up. He accepted it. Look at verse 32. And David said to Abigail, after she said all these things, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to this day to meet me. David saw Abigail's accountability as a blessing. So here's the deal. When we go to hold our fellow brothers and sisters accountable, do so the same way Abigail did David. But also when you're being held accountable, I want you to see it as a blessing from the Lord, preventing you from doing something that you will later regret. So we learned the value of, uh, of accountability. The second life lesson that I want to point out here today that spoke out to me is this, generosity cures arrogance. A generous heart will always prevent an arrogant heart. Here we look at Nabal. Nabal was extremely arrogant. He was very wealthy, but he was stingy. Nabal is where we get Ebenezer Scrooge from. 
That's who Nabal is. He was a jerk. He felt like everyone owned him. Think about his arrogance. He insulted a soon-to-be king. Not only that, he insulted his, his family. That's pretty bold, wouldn't you say? It's like Nabal thought, I'm untouchable. I'm so wealthy. I've got it all together. I've got the world by the coattails. And look at me. I'm large and in charge. He was arrogant. So much so that he lost respect. He lost the ability to respect any other person. And here's what I want to say. Building wealth is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not the point I'm trying to make out of this story. In fact, the Bible's full of wisdom about building wealth for your future. But what I'm driving at, what I see here in terms of Nabal's arrogance and his wealth is that his self-reliance is what led to arrogance. In other words, he forgot who blessed him to begin with. Isn't it true that we can often get ourselves in a position where we see our stuff the same way Nabal saw his stuff? It's ours. It's mine, mine, mine. And we forget the goodness of God that gave it to us to begin with. And this is the arrogance. This is the step towards arrogance that Nabal took. He viewed everything as his instead of everything having been given to him from God. See, generosity serves as an antidote to being arrogant. When we are generous with our stuff, we're reminded, you know what? It's not really mine anyway. It's all God's. And therefore, you can have some of it too. And you could have some of it too. And I'm going to be generous with the things that God has blessed me with. When we do that, we reflect the very generosity of God, who God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, generosity is the antidote to arrogance. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, As for the rich in this present age, and by the way, if you need to know who the rich are in this present age, it's you and me. It's all of us. The lowest salary in this room is still in the top 1% of the world's earnings. As for the rich in this world, you, me, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The bottom line is this, don't be a Nabal. Reflect the generosity of God and His grace. You know, believers in Jesus ought to be the most generous people. So value accountability Recognize that generosity cures arrogance. The third and final life lesson that I want to hit real quickly is this. Deal with offense appropriately. I think it would be naive for us to think, man, we'll never get offended. It's possible to go throughout life without being offended. I mean, I think we can all be honest in this room. There are people in this room that, that have offended us. Maybe not somebody in this room that has offended you, but, but we've had people offend us. And where it really hurts, where we really get offended, is when the people we place in a position of respect and authority in our lives, when they hurt us. That's terribly offensive. And I'm not saying that we make excuses and to say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's okay, give me more of it. You know, I'm not saying that we should be a doormat. 
But I'm saying that we should take a different perspective of when we are offended. When David was offended, it got the best of him. It controlled his life. It led him down a path where he was about to make a decision that he would have regretted in a major way down the line. David was vengeful. He wanted to return the evil with evil. He wanted to pay him back. But listen, payback never works. Retaliation never works. Instead, we ought to follow the Bible's example here. What does the Bible have to say when people have offended us? Look at Romans 12, 17 through 21. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not, overcome, uh, by, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Scripture is telling us is this, is that retaliation never works. When we retaliate, it only deepens the divide. Have you noticed that? We see evidence of that everywhere we look, don't we? Look at our politics. Look at our public discourse. Look at our workplaces. If you and I are going to deal with offense in a healthy way, we need to be a people that overcome evil with good. And by so doing, did you hear what Scripture says? You will heap burning coals on their head. I want you to think about for just a moment. Has there ever been a time where you offended someone? You knew you offended someone. Maybe you intended to offend them, but they were kind in return. What did that do to you? I'm thinking of a couple of instances in my own life where I offended someone and they treated me so kind. You want to talk about heaping burning coals on your head and the conviction deep within the core of your heart. It's almost like you would rather them be mad at you. But they weren't. They were kind instead. That's far worse of a get back when you think about it from that perspective, is it not? This is exactly the way God encourages us to deal with offense in our life. And and let me just pose this to you. Isn't that how God deals with us? I want you to think about it for a moment. The offense of your sin and mine. A willful disobedience to the command of God. Is it not a slap in his face? Is it not the highest of offense to a holy God for us to trample his word in our lives? For us to ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts? Talk about offense. That our sin ultimately leading Jesus down Calvary's path to hang on a cross, to die a criminal's death when he did nothing wrong. You want to talk about offense. You and I have offended God with our sin. Yet what is it that Jesus says from the cross? 
He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus overcame our evil with good. Jesus became our sin so that by faith and trust in him as the Lord and Savior of our lives, we can have his righteousness. He repaid our evil with good. It's the ultimate example for us to follow. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.